Yeah, I've been your pastor for five years now, five years last month, and it was a year ago that we started this journey in Mark. So if you do the math, I think if I do the math right, about 20% of our time together has been in the Gospel of Mark. We have, I've not done something like this before, but what a journey has been. I, I've been blessed by it, and I hope you have as well. And now we come to the climax today and next week. And now normally at the end of an extended series like this, it's almost like a school year, right? It's almost like been a whole semester of going through this together. And what happens at the end of the semester? There's a test. There's a quiz. There's that, that final exam. So are you ready for the test today? No, no, I'm not going to give you the test today. Okay, don't, just don't, yeah. <laughs> it's, don't pick C, right? <laughs> but, but no, if I were to have a test... If we were to go over and review, here's what would be on the test. What is the primary theme or the primary message, the main message of the Gospel of Mark? What's that? The kingdom is come. Somebody listened. Yeah. Yes. Gold star. Thank you. Well, you're a teacher. Good. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> the kingdom of God is here. It's Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Now is the time. Here comes God's kingdom. Jesus proclaims this at the very beginning, the very first chapter. And so what do we do with that? Change your hearts and lives. Repent and trust this good news. Jesus shows up and says, hey, I know there are other kingdoms in this world. Kingdom of Rome, Egypt, Babylon, all these kinds of systems and structures. The ways of the world. But let me introduce to you the ways of the kingdom of God. And everybody goes, what is that? What, do you, what does it look like to live through in the ways, not of the ways of the world, but the ways of the kingdom of God? And so Mark addresses this, uses the rest of his book to address what the kingdom of God is like, and then addresses one more question, who is this Jesus guy? Like, Jesus is the one proclaiming this. Who is he? And time after time, testimony after testimony of different people and even things and demons and even nature, all of them point to who Jesus may just be. And it leads to where we're going to be today in Mark chapter 15. The sermons are over now at this point. The miracles and signs and wonders, healing others, that's done the parables and teachings note Jesus has now been arrested. He's been to trial before the religious leaders and the leaders of Rome, the Roman authorities, and Jesus has been condemned and sentenced to death. And today we see that carried out. Mark chapter 15, and I'm going to start in verse 21. Simon, a man from Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus's father, was coming in from the countryside. They forced him to carry his cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means skull place. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. They crucified him. They divided up his clothes, drawing lots for them to determine who would take what. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The notice of the formal charge against him was written, the king of the Jews. They crucified two outlaws with him, one on his right, one on his left. People walked by insulting People walking by insulted him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha, so you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, were you? Save yourself and come down from that cross. 
In the same way, the chief priests were making fun of him among themselves. Together with the legal experts, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross. Then we'll see and believe. Even those who had been crucified with Jesus insulted him. From noon until three in the afternoon, the whole earth was dark. At three, Jesus cried out with a loud shout, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you left me? After hearing him, some standing there said, look, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, and put it on a pole. He offered it to Jesus to drink, saying, let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. But Jesus let out a loud cry. And died. The curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw how he died, he said, This man was certainly God's son. Some women were watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger one, and Joseph and Salome. When Jesus was in Galilee, these women had followed and supported him, along with many other women who had come to Jerusalem with him. Since it was late in the afternoon on preparation day, just before the Sabbath, Joseph from Arimathea dared to approach Pilate and ask for Jesus' body. Joseph was a prominent council member who also eagerly anticipated the coming of God's kingdom. Pilate wondered if Jesus was already dead. He called the centurion and asked him whether Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that Jesus was dead, Pilate gave the dead body to Joseph. He bought a linen cloth, took Jesus down from the cross, wrapped him in the cloth, and laid him in a a tomb that had been carved out of rock. He rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was buried. The word of the Lord this morning. We have come to the cross. And all of our time with Jesus over this past year has led us to this point. Jesus knew it would happen. He prayed that it wouldn't happen. He did not want to go through with this pain and suffering. But yet he did his prayer, not my will, but yours be done. And much has been said about the cross. There are entire academic courses and degrees about this one chapter, this one moment in time. And I cannot, to you, within the next, say, 15 minutes, accurately convey all of the meaning and beauty behind what Jesus did in this one chapter. But I will say this. We are here today because Jesus went to the cross to save us from our sins. And without that, all Jesus was was a good person, maybe a good teacher, An interesting person. But because of the cross, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus, I think we see here in this chapter a few different times, where Jesus becomes the example. He becomes the example. But whose example then. The Romans wanted to make Jesus an example. The Romans were the ones, they tried to make an example out of Jesus. I'd like to give to you today a description of the reason, the purpose of death by crucifixion. The Roman Empire was a marvel in its day of what it brought about 
and what it did for even the rest of the civilized world. Rome brought about certain technology, law and order, military conquest, scientific advancement. Other empires and civilizations had done one or two of these things or specialized in them in some way. The Romans perfected so much of this. Roads and currency and citizenship and infrastructure for sanitation and water, the aqueducts, all these things. Rome was so good at that and so efficient at these things. It's why they were able to establish so huge of an empire. Not because they were the meanest bully, they were, but also they were intelligent, they were smart. They Again, roads and infrastructure and sanitation. But there was one thing the Romans did that was not efficient. It was death. When the Romans decided someone needed to die, they were not brutally efficient at it. They did not do it quickly. They had other purposes in mind. The Romans perfected torture and slow death so as to serve one as a punishment but also as a deterrent for others who may be thinking about committing a crime against the empire. Let me read this description to you, written by Kent Brower, a scholar, and he wrote uh, the Beacon Bible Commentary on, on the Gospel of Mark. Kent Brower writes, Death by crucifixion was slow and on occasion deliberately prolonged to inflict the maximum humiliation on its victims. Their arms were normally tied to the cross beam or nailed to it through the wrists. This might be done before they reached the cross so that the victims carried their crossbeam to the pole. Once they arrived at the pole, victims would be hoisted by the crossbeam to the appropriate place on the vertical pole and left naked and exposed to public gaze. A peg or rudimentary seat was sometimes inserted into the upright on which the suspended and immobile victim was placed not to ease the pain but to prolong the agony. Crucifixions were done in public spaces as a warning to passers-by of the fate that awaited those who challenged the authority of the state. Jesus was made an example by the Romans. This is what happens to those who cause disruption, who make claims of authority or challenge the Roman way of life. Either follow Rome, either pledge your allegiance to the emperor, or be like Jesus. And all walking by could see what that would mean for you. But here's the scandal to this. Here's part of the reason we celebrate today. All the way through the Gospel of Mark, he is proposing this question, who is Jesus? And the demons will say, but Jesus says, silence. He silences the demons. Nature itself will quiet down. The storms and the wind and the waves quiet down. But it cannot testify to who Jesus is exactly. Some people want to follow him or say, we think you're Elijah. We think you're a prophet. We think you're like John the Baptist. But it is at the cross, after Jesus died, Rome speaks. Verse 39, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw how he died, he said, this man was certainly God's son. 
Who said that? His disciples? No. The women who were following him? No. John the Baptist? No. A voice from heaven? No. They probably would have. But in this moment, a Roman soldier, one who has pledged his allegiance and given his life to the things of the world, stood facing Jesus, had the best seat in the house, and the conclusion he came to, this man was certainly God's son. Rome tried to make an example of Jesus. Even Rome saw who Jesus really was. I've underlined and highlighted that that is such an important statement for the gospel of Mark in this entire journey to this point. Here is even the Roman soldier sees it. This man was certainly God's son. It wasn't just the Romans. The religious leaders of the day tried to make an example out of Jesus. And people who were passing by and even these religious leaders with the legal experts, what did they say? Because he can't save himself, he must not be the Messiah. This is an example. Jesus is the example of someone who talks a big game, but in the end is exposed as a fraud. He can't even save himself. That's the reasoning. That's the logic. The passers-by say that. The religious leaders say that. Okay, you think you're Messiah? Come down, save yourself. If you can't, we were right and you were wrong. Here's the scandal to this example. Jesus did not come to save himself. He came to save you and me and all of humanity who will receive him as Lord. And it is because Jesus did not come down from the cross. It is because he did not save himself that he chose willingly to go to the cross and suffer and die. That is the reason he is the Messiah. Because he laid down his own life to save you and to save me. That's who the Messiah is. The religious leaders had it all wrong. It's not you come down and we know you're Messiah. He had to be there to save you and to save me, to deal with our sin. If I can go back to what the centurion said, don't miss this in verse 39. When the centurion stood, when the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw how he died, as if that was the determining factor in the conclusion the centurion came to. It's because he saw how he died, which is very interesting because a Roman centurion, a Roman soldier, would see thousands of crucifixions over the course of his service and duty, right? It's not because he was crucified. It's not because he was nailed to the cross. It's not because he bled. Everybody who was crucified did that. But the centurion, centurion saw how he died willingly, innocently. The earth grew dark for three hours. The curtain in the temple was torn. He died not for himself or for his crimes, but for the forgiveness of sins for everyone. And when the centurion who stood facing Jesus with a front row seat saw it out play out before him, he saw how he died, and he said, this man was certainly God's son. Is that the example the religious leaders were hoping to convey? No. 
because Rome tried and failed to make an example out of Jesus. The religious leaders and experts tried and failed to make an example out of Jesus. But do you know there was one who did successfully make an example out of Jesus? It was Jesus himself. Jesus made an example out of himself. An example for who? Because I thought, wait, did Jesus, Jesus went to the cross so I wouldn't have to? Well, yeah, I mean, literally, yeah, we, we don't have to go to a cross. We don't have to get tortured and murdered on a cross. But funny little thing Jesus said earlier in Mark chapter 8. Did you catch this when we went through this? Mark chapter 8 says this. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. After calling the crowd together with his disciples, Jesus said to them, All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Take up their cross and follow me. Hmm. Does it mean that we all should go and get crucified as well? Not literally. I'll say it this way. It is not your job to save your life. You can't do it. Even if you had the power to do something like that, you would come down from the cross. I would too. It is not your job to save your life. It is your job to give your life away. Give your life away. And there are two ways we can mess this up. You can refuse to give your life away. You can say, no, I'm not going to give my life away. And instead, make yourself your own God. Is there anyone in here who has made themselves their own God? I'm not asking for hands. We don't normally think in that type of language today. We don't think, oh, I'm going to make myself a God today. I am a God. Very few people who actually say that. Some try it, and they sell a lot of sneakers out of that, but that's no. But there are ways in which we do present even ourselves as the God of our life. And we don't use that language, but it happens all the time. If you set yourself up as your own authority, you decide what is right and wrong, you are Mr. or Mrs. Independent, you and you alone make the determination on how you should live your own life, that is the language of someone who has set, up, set themselves up as their own God. We see this play out in politics, and it's, it's almost funny if it wasn't so serious and, and divisive. But one political party would say something like, my body, my choice. You can't tell me what to do with my own body. Stop trying to legislate what I can and cannot do with my body. Another political party might say, you can't make me get a vaccine. Stop trying to mandate what I can or cannot do. And we take both of those stances and we put them at opposite ends of the spectrum, of the political spectrum. And how extreme that kind of language is, it is the same concept. I'm the one in charge of me. I alone get to determine what is right and what is wrong. Now, please hear me, because some of you have stopped breathing, I know. I'm not preaching today in hopes that you will change your political affiliation. I'm not interested in your political affiliation. Nearly as much as I'm interested in your citizenship in a heavenly kingdom that is not of this earth. When it comes to political affiliations, kingdoms of this world, governments, yes, you don't, fo- you don't blindly follow earthly institutions, and I'm not suggesting that you should. 
And I hope this is not a surprise to you, but do you know there are some things that governments and legislatures will determine is legal that followers of Christ should not participate in, even though it's legal? <laughs> there are many things that could bring you a great deal of harm, even though it is legal. And on the other side, there are some things that governments and legislatures and institutions determine that is illegal, like, say, sharing your faith with others. There's some governments out there that have determined that is illegal. Should you do what is illegal in that case? Yes, you should. Break the law. Yeah. We do it. As a follower of Christ, we're called to break those laws and spread the gospel anyway. My point is not a political one. My point is a kingdom one. The, what is the oldest sin in the history of mankind as recorded in the Bible? It's when Adam and Eve decided, you know what? I would love to have the knowledge of good and evil. I would love to make that determination for myself. And if I had the knowledge of good and evil, then I can decide for myself what's right and wrong, what is good and evil, and I won't have to listen to God anymore. I'll just live the best way I know how. Give me that forbidden fruit. It's the very first sin described in the Bible. The very last verse in the book of Judges, Judges is one of the most violent there's, it's terrible. It's broken. There's no heroes in, the, in that book. It's just an absolute mess. And the way that book ends, in Judges 21, 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Each person did what they thought to be right. Each person did what they thought to be right. Take your best guess what's good and evil. And there was no king of Israel. Well, you know what? Israel has a king. God's people have a king. And it's just about the only thing the Roman leaders got right. Pilate, he got it right in Mark chapter 15, verse 26. The notice of the formal charge against him was written, the king of the Jews. See, the Romans thought they were making fun of Jesus by doing that. They didn't realize how correct they were. They thought they'd make an example of Jesus. Jesus was making an example of himself. Jesus said to them, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus says, in other words, I am the example. I'm the one to follow. I am doing what you should also do. Your job is not to save your life. You can't do that anyway. You're not strong enough. Your job is is to surrender your life to Jesus and his sacrifice, his blood, his passionate love and mercy and forgiveness and grace is ready and waiting to save your life. And the moment you give up your life to Jesus is the moment your life is saved. I said there's two ways we can mess this up. The first is to refuse to give up your life and instead make yourself the determiner of what is right and wrong. Here's a second way we can mess this up. If we do give up our lives, but we give up our life to something or someone other than Jesus. I've mentioned politics already, and I don't know if you're mad at me, but okay, here we go. Let's mention politics again. Your political party cannot save you. And it is not the one who will bring about God's purposes and will and his kingdom. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're not praying to an institution on earth to do that. Your spouse, your roommate, your parent, your loved one who is closest to you should be good and right and 
fair and supportive of you, but they cannot be the perfect, sinless, sacrificial Savior in your life. Don't try to make them that. They will let you down. The education you have, your career, your bank account, your insurance plan, your sports team, your kids, the club you belong to, those are all very good things. They cannot save you. They were never meant to save you. They were never meant to fulfill the inner desires of your heart. They were never meant to bring purpose and meaning to your life. So don't give your life to those things. Jesus Christ is the only one who can live up to the pressure and the responsibility and the essential task of being your Savior. So don't fall into the temptation to give your life over to something else. And how do we see that? How do, how do we mess that up? I've mentioned it before. Whatever you are giving your time, your energy, your attention, and money to is what you are worshiping. Whatever you're giving your time, your energy, your attention, and your money to That's how you give your life away. So don't give your life away to something unworthy of your soul. Instead, follow the example Jesus has given us. All who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I'll conclude with this story. Would you imagine today if we were to bring this chair right here? And I had you come and I had you stand on this chair and we held an auction, an auction for your life, for your soul. And one by one, you would come up here and do this. Who's my bid? What's, what's my bid for this life right here? And you would hope <laughs> you'd get a few bids. You'd hope you'd get some loved ones, some friends, some family that would... Uh, yeah, I'll bid, I'll bid on him, I'll bid on her. How much is a soul worth in an auction? Maybe the amounts would grow, maybe you'd get into the hundreds or thousands. What is your soul worth at auction? And then imagine someone walks in from the back, sharply dressed, but there's a mysteriousness, a darkness covered in shadow, and he steps forward and we all see it is Satan, the enemy. And he says, I make a bid for that soul. I bid riches and honor and the pleasures of this world. And a hush falls over the crowd. No one dares to make another bid. And the auctioneer replies, Sir, that is a rich bid indeed. But is there anyone else? Anyone else who could match such a bid? And from the back, there's one other hand that's raised. He stands, and his hand, you can tell there's a scar. It's Jesus. And the auctioneer says, Yes, you, sir, what is your bid for this fine soul today? And Jesus says, I do not offer riches or honor or the pleasures of this world. My bid is for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in the kingdom of God. 
And the auctioneer turns to the one on the auction block, to you and to me on the auction block. And the auctioneer says, which bid will you accept? In Mark chapter 8, Jesus said to his disciples, all who want to come after me must say no to themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Picture this. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let us pray. Lord, we stand before you not full of pride or achievement or accomplishment, but we stand before you sinful and broken. And the temptation is to accept a bid that would bring temporary pleasure and honor and riches and all this world may have to offer. But Lord, none of that can cleanse our, our heart, can fulfill us, can satisfy the desires and the purposes and the longings that you have created us with, Lord. And so we stand before you recognizing you have paid it all. And that you, as the sacrificial example, are who we look to and who we give our lives to because you are the only one worthy of our lives. So would you claim our souls today, Lord, in your strength, in your power, Lord, help us that we may receive your grace and your mercy, your love and your forgiveness, and then place within us your spirit. And may we find your purpose and your meaning for our lives as we take up our cross every single day reject the world, and follow you. 
Thank you. Thank you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.